Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. I am your host. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you for your continued support on the Afrofuturist podcast. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate you listening and being here. Today on the podcast, we talk to Aize Jama Everett. Aize is an Afrofuturist author and a speculative fiction writer. And one of the things that I really love about Afrofuturism is when you're talking about science and technology, art is a huge, huge part of the discussion always when we're speaking about Afrofuturism. And uh, inherent in Afrofuturism since the beginning of recorded language and recorded civilization, those things were depicted in images. Those things were depicted in paintings, whether it be the Egyptian hieroglyphs or um, the cave paintings in the ancient civilization of Yam or all of these things that we now know originated on the African continent, be it astrology, astronomy, tracking of the stars, the building of the pyramids, so on and so forth. Art was a really major part in the expression of not only science and technology, but futurist thinking. And one of the reasons why I really dig Afrofuturism is that's always a huge part of it. Art is always a major, major part of it, which is why I like talking to artists as well. And I like really... Uh, I like the term Afrofuturist when it comes to not only the science and the tech, but also the art. And Aize is one of those people who uh, encompass, in my opinion, what a, a true Afrofuturist is uh, and what a true speculative fiction writer is. So in this episode, we really unpack not only Aize's experience traveling throughout the continent of Africa and having that really inform his work and really influence his work. But we also talk about what uh, a speculative fiction writer is and why speculative fiction goes a little bit deeper than science fiction. Um, and Aize talks about this. He articulates it very, very well because he really talks about how uh, speculative fiction writers ask the questions that science fiction writers don't normally ask. And he has a really interesting... Um, take on this when he talks about the transporters in Star Trek. And I'm, I'm going to save it for the conversation because it's really, really good. I think it's he, he puts it way better than I could summarize it in this. He wrote the series of books called The Liminal People. And you should all check out Liminal People on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, and he talks about how mysticism and religion helped him find the path to where he is now. He's uh, a really interesting person, a great, um, great idea entrepreneur. And I had a really great conversation talking with him. So without further ado, Mr. Aize Jama Everett. The future. Aize. Yes. How are you, brother? I cannot complain too loudly. Cool, man. Thank you for joining us on the Afrofuturist podcast. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you. Um, I really want to start with where you came up with the idea for your book or your series of books. Like, what were your influences growing up? 
Oh, uh, comics nonstop. Yeah. Uh, Were you a Marvel guy, a DC guy? Total Marvel baby. Uh, for the most part, like, you know, uh, Daredevil, God Loves, Man Kills. Uh, sorry, no, that was X-Men. Um, Daredevil Born Again, that uh, oh, yeah. series. Great series. Uh, yeah, you know, um, Daredevil's girlfriend sells his secret identity for a hit of smack in Mexico. I was like seventh grade, and I was like, wait, what happened? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it was just like real, you know, growing up in New York and um, with this like, context of comics and you know peter parker living in queens you know and like fantastic four is supposedly being like in downtown manhattan and you know i'm i'm looking around in my world trying to see where this like alternate reality is happening yeah. um and then you add you know grow up in harlem and then going to the village and being like there's so many different worlds happening all at once um I just kind of took for for granted that there were multiple layers of reality happening all at the same time. So um, that's kind of where it started, and then um, you know jumped pretty quickly to science fiction novel. Public Library, 145th Street. You know, right. um, they had the kids section, and there and I, I burned through those books, and they were like, "Well, we'll let you read in the in the science fiction section. That's the only place we'll allow you to check books out from." I was like, "Okay." And then like four months later, I was like, "What else you got?" So I've been a sci-fi geek my whole life. I just can't help it. <laughs> and what was the what was the the thing outside of the comic books? Like, what was the the novel that hooked you? Where you were just like, "Oh no, this I'm doing this. This is what's gonna happen." Yeah, I mean, I picked up, um, I picked up Wild Seed. It must have been pretty close to when it first came out, Octavia, Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler, yeah. Yeah, and I just was like, I didn't, I was like, nah. it felt too real. Right. I was like, oh, okay, so there's African shapeshifters that got put on slave boats that came over. To, okay, I got that, but how come I haven't heard of this anyplace else? And I remember asking my mom, she's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, this is fiction, Isaiah, it's not real. And I was like, no, it's it the way it's written, it, it's real. Like, there's no... It was so, I don't know, there was something so raw about it that I was like, this can't be made up. And when I understood that it was fiction, I was like, oh, okay, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to try and figure that out. You know? And so I've just been literally writing ever since. And your your education background is in psychology. <laughs> uh, I have a master's in clinical psychology. I also have a master's in theology as well, so... So um, I'm all over the board. How did you how did you decide on that as an educational uh, foundation? And does that foundation inform your writing at all? Um, so I got the actually got the master's in divinity first. Um, and again, it's all about altered worlds, you know. So um, when I was younger, I spent some time in Morocco and I got to spend some time with these guys. Um, they're called Ganawa. Um, and they were slaves from um, an empire in Mali um, in the 14th century. And they were brought up to Morocco um, as slaves, but not like U.S. kind of slaves, but like sort of privileged slaves. It's kind of hard to explain. It's like, it's a bad analogy, but think about like a thoroughbred horse. Like you wouldn't whip or beat a thoroughbred horse. You see the value in them. That's how they were brought up into Morocco. And... Um, in Morocco, they were able to keep their culture, and their culture is uh, deeply embedded in in this uh, sort of trance tradition, not unlike Condomblé or Vodun, but it's uh, based in Islam. 
Um, but when you listen to it, like they call them the blues men of Morocco, because when you hear their music, it's so, it sounds like blues. It sounds like this wailing, wailing blues. And so I went and I was fortunate enough to go to a, um, a Ganaha ceremony in the middle of the desert. And it just like cracked my head open about how people experience their religion and their spirituality. Um, so when I came back to the U.S. after a little bit, um, I went to seminary, you know, because I really wanted to look at how do, how do people live their, their theologies. You know, I think um, our perception of reality is altered more by what we believe we'll see than what's actually there. Yeah. And so these are who like walk around thinking and feeling like they're seeing spirits all the time. So I was like, well, what, how does that work? You know, and how does that impact the psyche? And why don't African-Americans do that? Oh, yeah, we do all the time. My bad. Right. You know, so um, that's kind of how it started. And then I was, um, so I started doing that. But while I was doing that uh, theological work, I was working in a drug and alcohol rehab for teenagers. Um, and I was supervising all these people with, uh, you know, masters in psychology and social work. Right. And they're kind of like, whoa, why why don't you do this? <laughs> you know, like you've got more skills than we do. Mm. So, um, yeah, went to, went back to school and got a master's in clinical psychology. How does it impact my work? You know, uh, every writer has their strengths and weaknesses. I think my strengths were rooted in, um, the internal life of the characters. Right. Um, I think I'm really good at getting what's going on, um, and that internal process to be external. Um, and that comes from, you know, sitting with people literally for thousands of hours, listening to how they process things and dialogue. Like I have a really good ear for dialogue because I listen to people. Right. Um, you talked about your time in Morocco. What brought you there? Like, why did you decide on Morocco to go to? Ha. Uh, it's a funny story. Um, so I was in France initially and I was actually, I was about to get into a bar fight with uh, the supporters of Jean-Marie Le Pen, who is the father of the racist Le Pen that's running for, yeah, now, right? So I was about to get into it with these guys, and then all of a sudden they backed off, and I was like, okay, because I thought I was going to get my ass beat personally. And I look behind me, and there's these, like, seven Algerian and Moroccan dudes that just have my back, and I was like, oh, who are you guys? And they were like, oh, my God, that was great the way you, like, didn't back down. Because they're, like, these immigrant kids who were, like, you know, they were just trying to keep their head down in in um, in Avignon. And, and, you know, I'm a Harlem cat, you know. Like, we, there's only so much shit you can talk to me. After a while, I'm like, well, let's just deal, let's just deal with it now. And then right. whatever, whatever. So I was like, ah. And then, like, you know, so these guys were like, oh, we've never seen that. You know, standing up to these guys. I was like, yeah, whatever. And, they're, and they all lived in Avignon. They lived in uh, Marseille, which is like further south. And that's like little Morocco, little Algeria. And I felt so at home there. I was feeling so claustrophobic in France. And it was just weird. But then like I was around all these like cool Arab kids, um, Maghrebi kids, you know, North African kids. And they were like, you need to come to Morocco. I was like, yes, I need to go to Morocco. You know, it was like my first time as an adult going to Africa and going on my own. So I was like... Yeah, you know, so I went down there when I was in high school, and I just made these really, really tight friends, like, just beautiful people. And I, I, you know, I say it all the time, like, I didn't really understand hospitality until I had that Arab hospitality, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, when I, I couldn't afford to finish out my undergrad degree, and so I had to leave. And, 
you know, they were like, hey, man, come home. You know, and I was like, what? they were like, come home. Like, our, our home is your home. So off and on, I spent like three years going back and forth to Morocco, just like hanging out with some cool people, you know, getting to see the country, um, eating some great food, like really, you know, just expanding myself as a human being. Yeah, I had that. I had a similar experience when I was in Tunisia um, shooting mm. episode one and episode two. You know, that was my first time to the continent of Africa. And, you know, if you're a black American, anything on the continent of Africa feels like, you know, you're Kunta Kinte reclaiming his roots. <laughs> you know, So I was in Tunisia yeah. and um, I was at some kind of dance party and there was a bunch of people like dancing around me. And this, you know, Tunisian dude came up and he said, you are African people. Don't forget you are African people. And like <laughs> meant it. You know what I mean? Like said it in a yeah. way that I was like, whoa, I, yes, I am African people. And so I understand that that sentiment when you get there, you know, and they see you, you know. And the other thing I got was Michael Jordan, right? And I was like, nah, man, I'm not Michael Jordan. <laughs> Sorry, bro. I'm not Michael Jordan. So w- uh, which yeah, came was... first? Did Morocco Sorry, come first and then New Hampshire and then Mexico and then Africa and Asia. like, how do you, how, what, what is this? How do you, what are you doing getting around like this? Like, what, what is it for? Is it for research? Is cause you like to travel? Like what, what is, what is it? This, this thirst for, for I other mean, cultures. You know, it's, it's all of the above, you know, um, I left New York when I was, uh, 13, 14, cause New York was crazy at the time, you know, it was, uh, double dip HIV and, and crack was just, you know, wiping out, you know, everybody that I knew. And it was just, it was ugly, you know, and I got a scholarship to go to this boarding school in New Hampshire. And, you know, I was like, all right, I'll go to the white mountains of New Hampshire. Cause why the hell not? Well, I was young and dumb. Um, but you know, so went up there, um, but, you know, I've always had this, like, I don't like to stay still that long. You know, I like to kind of move around. California, I've been in California for the longest, but, you know, I just got into a MFA program at UC Riverside. So I'm going to be leaving the Bay Area, mm-hmm. you know, and coming down coming down your way, actually, um, in, a, in a few months. The rest of it, um, I am more at home on the road than I am sitting still. Right. You know, um, in terms of like other cultures and whatever, I'm not like a cultural vulture or anything like that. But like, I just feel like when you can get away, when you can just talk to people, like it doesn't matter where they are. Like, if I can, if I can, if I can meet somebody, actually have a real conversation, I feel like I always learn something. So, um, yeah, I just, I just keep it moving. <laughs> what is speculative you know? fiction to you? <sighs> It's a more authentic label for what a lot of people of color are doing as opposed to science fiction or fantasy. Mm-hmm. So fantasy, like I remember asking the question forever, like, does fantasy have to include dragons? You know, does fantasy have to include elves? Does fantasy mm-hmm. have to include fairies? But fan- and, and for a while it did because it was all this like, um, it was rooted in, in European myth and mythos, right? And, right. like, that was what it meant to be fantasy. 
science fiction was similarly rooted in a science mythos of the 1930s and 40s of um, science being this this forever progressive element in fiction, you know, like everything next um, has to be better and it has to be more technologically advanced, which means it has to have... Um, it has to have more lasers. It has to be able to go faster than light. Like, it's, it was all this, like, everything that comes next is better. When you look at people of color science fiction or, or speculative fiction, it re, what it does is it questions all of those assumptions. And I think more than anything, and that's what people of color science fiction really does well, is it, is it takes all those things that you just know are true and it goes, eh, maybe not. Let's see what happens if the let's let's see what happens if like the best knowledge actually came from people that were seven that lived seventeen hundred years ago. Oh, but then they got enslaved. Or if you think about it, like I mean, and I'm not I'm not trying to come for your dude, and I'm not trying to come for your people. But who built the Millennium Falcon? The Millennium Falcon is a total waste of resources, man. That's a big ass ship. It's supposedly for smuggling, but only two dudes are riding around in that all the time. Yeah. How much energy does that? T- you know, like I feel like a Mexican dude you know, who grew up with, like, uncles um, uncles and dads who work in mechanic shops, when they're writing a science fiction story, they're like, well, who built the spaceship? Right. What's the spaceship runoff, right? Those are questions that are not generally asked in science fiction, but they're always asked in speculative fiction. Right. So that's where the, the line is. And where does that fall in the canon? Like, you, uh, you know... What I mean by that is you're not, would you, would there be the mechanics version of the millennium Falcon? Would that be a speculative fiction book? Like, all right, y'all Han flew it, but this is how I (laughs) built it, you know, and why I built it. Right. You know what I mean? So if it, so speculative fiction can fall in the same vein as science fiction, it could fall like right in the middle of it. I think it's just, a more accurate description of what people are doing. Right. Right. I think the science fiction, you know, from, you know, the, from the pulps of the thirties and forties, the scientifica fiction and like all that stuff is, is it's, it's dated. The term is dated. Um, yeah. You know, you look at things like black mirror. Yeah. Um, like that TV show, black mirror, mm-hmm. um, that's speculative fiction, Right. It's, is it is the importance of it that it's rooted in the future? Mm, not so much. the The question is, what are the questions that it's that it's? How is it interrogating current technologies and projecting them out in the future in a way that problematizes them? That's where the speculative. That's where the speculation comes in. Right. Um, the the problem with not even the problem, but um, a, a consistency in classic science fiction is it doesn't have any problems with the technology that it presents, mm-hmm. right? It's just like, this This is just what happens. This Now we've got spaceships going to other planets, da, 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 you know? Yeah. Kim Stanley Robinson does a great deal with this Mars series where he's like, okay, now what does terraforming actually look like? Um, what's his name? Uh, China Melville does this great thing in his book Kraken about... What, when you talk about a transporter, like for Star Trek, like we always talk about, okay, just transport down. Yeah. Well, what is transporting? Transporting is when you take somebody's molecules and you scatter them across a large plane of space and then reconstitute them. Well, if you don't reconstitute them, you know what that's called? That's called killing somebody. Murder. Yeah. So you are basically killing 
people. Every time you transport somebody on Star Trek, you killing them. Yeah. And how come nobody talks about that? You're murdering them and <laughs> you know resurrecting. I mean? So like, exactly. Yeah. Right. And like you know, in, in China Melville's book Kraken, there's a guy who's like, "Don't transport me ever again. I'm tired of dying." You know. Right. So it comes up. So like the speculative fiction thing is like this. Um, it's just it's just more accurate. I think it's just a more accurate dis- um, description of what's really going on. Right. Right. What was the? I mean, it sounds as if. You know, comic books are probably the the speculative fiction um, in the speculative fiction world a lot more than a lot of novels are because you know, like you said, Daredevil was in Hell's Kitchen in New York, right? You know what I mean? And he's like, "What would happen if a blind dude had superpowers and he could fly <laughs> across, you know, Hell's Kitchen?" But there, I haven't right. really encountered any novels from the the past that kind of did that in that kind of way what what were some of the things that were the influence for those no i mean i actually feel like novels are doing a better job of it now than comics because comics are are getting so rooted in the narratives of of the movies yeah right everything has to be everybody writes a a comic to be a movie exactly um but if you look at everything samuel delaney has ever written um it is a speculative fiction novel. Like he, he, he problematizes everything. You know, the Einstein equation, perfect example. Um, you know, Nettie Okenfor, I mean, like, you know, she a Nigerian American woman writing about, you know, things like water, you know, things about like rape, things about like war in the future. Well, in the future, aren't we supposed to be over these things? Like, um, she's I mean, she's just dope. NK Jemison, I mean Fantasy can't look the same after N.K. Jemisin. Like, it's done. It's over. Like, people have to... They, they. It's like, remember, like, when The Wire came out and it was like, you can no longer tell a simple story about a drug dealer. Like, right. drug dealers' lives are complex. M.K. Jemisin did that, has done that for fantasy. You know, like, it's over now. Like, you you have to be, you have to be more complex in your stuff. Um, Nalo Hawkinson takes... Uh, you know, kind of disregards science fiction and fantasy line and then and then puts an accent on it. Like, she's an Afro-Caribbean and queer uh, writer of color. It's just, you know, she has this awesome story, you know, like, um, kind of turn things on their head where, um, you know, like, in classic science fiction, the girl... Um, has her first period, and then she gets the weird psychic powers, like Carrie, yeah, right? Totally. Yeah. Okay. So Nalo has this novel where this woman is going through menopause, and she goes to menopause, and then her powers start coming, and her first power is everything she ever lost comes back to her. So, like, change just starts raining from the sky, and it's all the change she ever lost. Wow. Like, that's some deep stuff, you know? And she's going through... Um, she's going through the lens of this Afro-Caribbean spirituality, which views menopause not as this like shameful or weird thing, but like as a time of, of claiming your full womanhood. Yeah. So again, like I think because people of color's lives are so problematized on a day to day, we can't help but problematize and like articulate the polemics that, that are around us in our fiction. Right. What is a, a, a sci-fi trope that speculative fiction gets rid of? 
I don't think it gets rid of any of them. I think that that's the best part. Like we get to play with stuff all the time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, we don't we don't get rid of tropes. We're like, well, how does that work? Right. Okay. And then like, what happened if what would happen if a person of color dealt with it? Right. So it's more about <laughs> you know um, a and deeper it's not- questioning of the the, yeah. the 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 science in the fiction. Exactly. And the fiction, right? Like. You got these square ass narratives. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear on this. Yeah, um, you got this. Yeah, okay, good. You got these square ass narratives coming out about you know um, mutant bounty hunters on a spaceship trying to take over the planet Zingon for for you know three. Okay, that's cute. Don't get me wrong. I grew up reading them. I have tons of them right over here. But like, how do you make that interesting to to people that are reading now? The population that's reading now, the the population that's growing the most that's reading now are women of color. Mm-hmm. Like that's who's that's who's buying books, right? Women in mass, women of color, fastest growing population that's reading. So how do you make stuff interesting to them? I think that's a great question. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, as I'm writing, as I'm putting stuff together, I love having that question in mind. But what do you right. find? What do you find? black women are are responding to specifically in you know in the speculative fiction world in the science fiction world because you know there's a there's a there's a classic you know fallacy that black people don't like sci-fi and that black people aren't into speculative fiction i think who's ever said that is i would love to see their data whenever people say that i'm always like where's your data yeah because what i've tend to find is that uh, I believe it was Blade that saved New Line Cinema. Um, I think Shaft, as an action flick, saved Warner Brothers. Um, I think there are so... We... We read. I think what's I think what's hard for a lot of uh, publishers and a lot of producers or whatever is they don't know what, like, we're into. And when... You, when they meet us, when they meet the people that are really psyched in, um, about projects, like think about Jordan Peele, you know, and uh, Get Out. Yeah. You know, like I saw the trailer for Get Out. I was like, I'm going to see that movie. I'm going to make that movie the number one movie. I don't give a fuck. That movie looks great. Right. right. Like there was just an instant connection there. Right. And I know that that dude did that movie on $4.5 million. Yes. Nobody was going to give him a lot of money for that. But, you know, that was that dude's dream. And I totally understand it. When you actually articulate, your experience, which is what every writer is trying to do in whatever form, I don't care if it's science fiction, romance, you know, classic literature, all you're trying to do is articulate your experience. When you get a chance to do that without 45 editors getting in the way, without a producer being like, can you have a white lead in it? Without an, you know, publisher being like, you know, we want to put a white person on the cover. When you actually get to articulate your experience as a person of color, other people of color see that and they're like, oh, you're talking my language. Right. When you have people of color articulating their experience, everybody's fascinated. You yeah. don't have to be a person of color to be fascinated by that. Right. You know, like, I, when I was growing up, Amadeus is one of my favorite movies of all time. I was like, let me see what this crazy white composer is all about. Right. This movie is fascinating. This movie is great. It had absolutely nothing to do with my life as a 10, 12-year-old African-American in Harlem. It didn't matter. Right. I mean, right. uh, very smart very smart brother. I don't know if you ever check out that blog. Um, 
That dude's hilarious. He said, like, he had this one, like, 10, 10 white things that black people are really into. Right. And uh, Yeah, I did see that. Really good. You saw that? Yeah. And, dude, Dukes like, of Hazard, that was my shit. Yeah. That is a story about two white moonshiners with a Confederate flag on, a, on an orange on the top of their charger. Car. Yeah. You know, and that was my shit. Yeah. I loved that. You don't have to be from the culture to appreciate an articulation of culture, exactly. right? Exactly. So that, so I feel like that's the thing that like Hollywood and all these publishers and whatever keep missing. They keep meeting, see, because it's not like the, it's not like people aren't trying to get this stuff done. It's like there aren't people out there, um, cultural uh, producers trying to put this stuff out there. The problem is that when the money people see it, they don't think it'll they don't think it'll sell in China. To be hundred percent honest, yeah, that's right. Um, like they're like. It's not going to translate, but it actually does. Very much so. Yeah, it really does. Now, you self-published. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I started out self-publishing, and then my book got picked up by uh, Small Beer Press. Did it, did it get picked up because of the self-publishing, or did, did they get a manuscript? Yep. Yeah. So you sold on your own first, and then they, they picked up the book. Yep. Is that the future of publishing? Um, I don't know. You gotta be, I'm an advocate of self-publishing, but you've got to be on your grind. It's a job. It's not a, it's not instead of getting picked up by a publisher, it's, um, everything you're doing when you get picked up by a publisher, you have to do when you're self-publishing 10 times more. In general, like, you know. You have a, a book that is a speculative fiction. Where do you go? I mean, who does who publishes speculative fiction now? And if they do, how do they find you in any other way other than self-publishing? I mean, look, the old routes are still there, right? You still sub, you can still submit stuff and wait. You can still bug people. Rosarium, Tor, um, Ace Publishing. I mean, they're they're the imprints and and the things are out there. Um, but it's not a meritocracy, mm-hmm. right? The cream doesn't rise to the top. That's, that's just like, that used to be the mentality. That's just not the case. Three quarters of the time, I will say it's who you know. Right. Right. I also think, I mean, just as a writer, like, I think you, you really have to work your craft. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I've got three books out. I've got a fourth one under contract. I'm working on a screenplay, and I'm going back to school to get an MFA. In because I want to make sure my craft is tight. MFA in writing. In writing. Wow. Creative writing. How has um, being in 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 like the Silicon Valley area helped or hindered you in any kind of way? It just made rents higher, man. Yeah. I mean. I don't know what these cats are bringing to the creative process. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of jargon. They brought they brought in a lot of jargon. How about that? Right. Um, you know, um, I just it feels like a cult of personality. You know, like it right. doesn't feel like they're doing anything. The game isn't getting better. You know? Right. Um, the game's not getting better. The, the quality of work isn't improving greatly. 
Um, it's still outside, like there's no mechanized process by which great art is being produced and nor will there ever be, right? right? So I see, I see Silicon Valley as another industry. Mm-hmm. I think they're beginning to see it as another industry. They're making cars, but the difference is they have this mystique of cool. What do you but think is missing in the creative process in Silicon Valley? They're not creatives. I mean, there's some creatives down there, but I, I mean, I, and I know some, but like, that's not, when you hire more coders than you do writers, you get what you pay for. Right. Right. You get people that can, that can take something complex and make it something simple. I would really like to make simple things more complex. Right. You know what I mean? Like they're just, they're doing it in reverse. But when you look at where the writers are, you look at where the videographers are, you look at where the editors are. They're, they're not getting pulled in. Like there's maybe three or four, you know, per spot at, I'm not going to mention any, any places in particular because I'll probably freelance for some of them. Um, but like they bring in their cre- their creatives on like a, on a dibby dibby level, like on a, on a okay level. But then, you know, they'll have 45, 50 dudes who like just sit around looking at code all day talking about their creative and their change in the world. No, you ain't. You sit in front of your computer, man. Right. If there was a, <laughs> if there was a, a, a company up there that came to you and said, "Yo, Aize, we need some speculative fiction to improve our dot dot dot," which company do you think would you you would be excited to go in and just get in there and spit? That's the thing. The great thing about being a writer is I can imagine it for any of them. Right. You know, like um that. That that's my work, <laughs> you know. Like you tell me, like you tell me what you want, or you tell me that you're interested, and I'm like, all right, well, here are like eight or ten different proposals. You tell me what works best for you, you know. Um, yeah, you know, Apple, Twitter, you know, all of them. They they have potential, but the 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 capitalist marketplace sort of hems up creative flow because it's really hard to monetize it on a consistent level. Right. It's very well. Put. Right. Like the movie studios got it in the forties and fifties where they're like, this needs to be a machine. You know, if we can guarantee people going to the theaters all the time, then we can make consistent money at this. And if we can make consistent money about this, we can project out, we can get loans, we can build up yada, yada, yada. Right. But the creative process by and large is, is not that. Right. What's the thing? What's the thing that catches you? Is it a strong protagonist? Is it a strong? Is it is it a a, a a good hero's journey? Is it a is it the conflict? What's the thing that really gets you? I will tell you personally. I hate the hero's journey. I think it's some bullshit and it's a myth and it's it's killing modern storytelling. Yeah. Um, I will say for me, um, I I appreciate it when things are actually hard. Mm. Right. There's too many um, pretend conflicts or implied binary oppositions. Um, dude, I can't like I got to talk about your 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 world over there. So sorry. But Star Wars, um, that, that Rogue One, um, you got what's his name? Uh, uh, Metal Feet, um, whatever his name is, uh, a black dude. Oh, Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, Forrest Whitaker. 
Yeah, Forrest Whitaker's character. I'm like, why did he have to die? Yeah. Like, and no it's idea. not like me on some black rights shit. It was just like story, story wise. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, what yeah. are you doing? You know? So yeah. there's all these like manufactured conflicts, right? That totally are devoid of the human element. And I think what happened, I think it's a result of, of writing by committee, right? When you've got a producer, a writer, a editor, a story editor, and then um, a video editor all having their say in how something gets done, you don't get to, like, you don't get to see one person's vision. Yeah. And I think naturally we have a consistency. I think human beings have an emotional consistency. So for me, I, the emotional consistency I appreciate is real conflict. Yeah. When shit goes pear-shaped, like when things really get out of whack, then what do you do? Yeah. That's what I'm concerned about. Yeah. I mean, so like, I think, I I think that's me. a, I think that's a, a, a great observation. And, you know, I think, and here's me on my Star Wars soapbox just for a minute. <laughs> love, love George Lucas or hate George Lucas. He got what he wanted. And regardless right. of what anybody thought or what anybody said, his vision is on screen, period. And once you let a multi-international corporation start making movies, then you're not going to get a consistent vision. You know, whether yeah. or not you think the movie is good or whether or not you don't think the movie is good, you can see the inconsistencies in the story. And right. you, you never really got that, in my opinion, with any of the movies that George did. So can I okay? Can I say one thing about Star Wars? Sure. It, and it ties into ties into what you're talking about. So I'm 42, about to be 43. Mm -hmm. So uh, Star Wars came out when I was three. Yeah. Um, and I didn't see Star Wars in the theater. Right. The first uh, Star Wars movie I saw in the theater was Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Empire Strikes Back is some dark and crazy shit. It starts out fucked up, right? Luke gets frozen. There's a Yeti that's after him. You never see another Yeti dude again in your entire life. Right. His best friend is like, I will freeze and see you in hell. He cuts open the little Tauntaun thing. The Tauntaun was a nice dude. Luke right. Skywalker out of the blue starts seeing ghosts. If you haven't seen Star Wars, you don't know who Obi-Wan Kenobi is. All right. of a sudden, you see this crazy ghost come at him. He lands in a swamp. Everything's going crazy. The movie ends with the best friend frozen in carbon. Like, it's... It's so nothing goes right in Empire Strikes Back, yeah. and it's my favorite Star Wars movie. Mine too, right? Yeah. It is, and because that's what like, and that's pretty much what I write. Like when people are like, "Yeah, like your shit just kind of starts like halfway through," I'm like, "Yeah, it starts halfway through because that's what's the most compelling. That's what's the most interesting. Assume shit has already happened. I'm gonna assume you're an intelligent reader. You'll figure it out. And by the time shit ends, nothing's gonna be the same. Yeah, right. But that." That narrative style of mine comes directly from Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. I think I'd be a different writer if I started out seeing Star Wars and having everybody, like, having the tale end happily. Yeah, absolutely. I think Empire is a masterpiece. And I, I don't think we have seen a movie in with that type of struggle in totality since... I mean, it's yeah. one of those it's one of those movies that the reason why it's so impactful even to this day is because it was really honest about what it was. And that was mm -hmm. a tragedy. You will feel it and you'll feel yeah. it for the rest of your life. It was a tragedy and there was no excuses in the movie. You are going to take it. What do you got coming up, man? What's going what's on the what's on the menu for what's next for Aize? 
Uh, I got another liminal coming out pretty soon. Well, I'm delivering another liminal pretty soon, so it'll probably so, be yeah. In tell the us years. about the liminal series, like really for for folks who haven't read it or for the people who who are who are just finding out about you. What is liminal? Like, tell us what it what it's all about and and where did it come from? Uh, liminal people is about a guy. Well, the first book, the liminal people, is about a guy named Taggart who can sort of heal or hurt just by thinking about you sees your biological process and can like, you know, give you a brain tumor just by thinking about it. Um, and his uh, ex-girlfriend um, calls him and says that her daughter's missing and her daughter has powers um, as well. And so it's kind of, he's got to go out and find, find this daughter. Um, and in that we get to explore his world of these people. They call them liminal people, sort of like a, in between humans and gods. And they're not really sure what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, these people that just have abilities. Um, my goal with it was to, again, to problematize this notion of like superpowers. You know, like you say you can read somebody's mind, but what exactly does that mean? Like you read it like a book, you see what they see, you feel what they feel. Because that would be uncomfortable if you had to feel what everybody was feeling to yeah. read their mind. You know what I mean? So, um, so that was the first book. And then uh, The Liminal War you know those folks go to war and yeah liminal war is kind of like my empire strikes back um and then um entropy of bones which is the third book it's kind of like what would happen if uh han solo had a in-between story between star wars and empire strikes back (laughs) right so um but yeah it's uh where did it come from it came from my travels in morocco and london you know all around it came from um I'd written this pretty complex uh, science fiction story that was picking up a lot of really great rejection letters. And one of the rejection letters was like, hey, can you just write something simple? And I was like, this is simple. So, right. Yeah. Did you Uh, want powers when you were a kid? Oh, I thought I had powers. Oh, yeah. What was your power? I was just waiting. No, they were going to come up. I didn't know what they were. But I was like, when I hit 13, I'm going to have powers could be different so i'd be like looking at spoons for like an hour on end trying to bend it just a little bit trying to like listen to people's brains i was a weird kid man it wasn't i was not cool at all like it's cool to be afro geek now it was not cool in the 80s to be afro geek tell me about it i was complete (laughs) afro geek in the in the in the 70s 80s and 90s only when afro geek started making money that was when it got cool (laughs) exactly folks got cool So, um, new liminal people. What's this one about? Can you give us a preview of what the new book oh, is going to entail? Uh, it all, it's all over. Um, I think you know. Right now, I'm calling it the last liminal because uh, you know, if you read if you read my first book, like you know, like I don't, I'm not nice to my characters. You know, like bad things yeah. happen to good people. Um, and so, this is a book of, you know. Lots of narrative that I'm into right now, probably because this political situation that we're in right now is about how to keep fighting even when you're losing. Uh, And so that's what this book is about. It's how these characters continue to to fight for what they leave in, even though everything around them is falling apart and, and they keep losing and they keep screwing up and it keeps looking like nothing's going right. How do you, how do you stay in the fight? Because I think we need more of those narratives. Right. Um, but yeah, you asked me what else I got going on. Um, 
John Jennings. Um, John has assembled some amazing artists, um, and he's a you know phenomenal artist himself. He did the covers for two of my books, um, and and the third, Johnny doing the third. Um, he's gonna. Uh, we're working on this graphic novel called Box of Bones, which uh, looks at it's kind of like a Tales from the Crypt meets Black History. Um, so oh, so the writing is done, the art is coming in and getting worked on, and. Um, that will be, you know, that'll be coming out soon. One of the interesting things about working with and graphic novels is that you uh, you don't have a lot of control over when people get their pages done. But my pages are done. So. Right. I hear that. If you could, if you could write a sentence that could fix one problem that the world will face in the next fifteen years, what would that be? I could write a sentence. Yeah. So, what would the sentence be, or what yeah. would the what would the sentence um, And then we finally learned to collaborate. Wow. Great sentence. That's really great. Where can we find you, man? Where can we find your books? Where can we find your thoughts, your musings, everything? Where, what's, what's all your handles? Uh, you know, jopuba at gmail.com. Feel free to shoot me an email whenever, wherever. Uh, Liminal EOB. You can find that on Tumblr. Uh, yeah. Um, books are on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. You know, wherever you find books, support your local book dealer. But you know, it's all out there. Right up. Well, Aize John Everett, A Y I Z E. Do that. I'm the first thing that pops up. Boom. Well, Aize, man, this has been fantastic. Really love having you on the show. Um, everybody's gonna check out Liminal People, all three of your books. Um, and. Really appreciate you, man. Really appreciate you. Great work, and 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 keep keep writing it for us. Keep speculating. Appreciate. Hi, brother. Hi, What's up? Take care. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at. Ahmed Best at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at Ahmed Best on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist Podcast, please contact me again at Ahmed Best at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Ahmed Best. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.